All right. We were planning, or I should say I was planning, on doing some wrap-up in the book of Jonah. If you've been around in the last few months, you have uh, been a part of the Jonah series. And we've gone through it uh, chapter by chapter and some places verse by verse to capture that story so we could understand and see how it applies to our lives, to see what that book of the Bible reveals about the nature of God and the nature of what it means to, to follow Him. But... Instead of recapping and doing some overview again, as I was originally thinking, I figured this is such a momentous time, as you've already heard this morning talking about a transition, this is such a momentous time for our church, I would figure, I figured it would be good to pull away from Jonah for this morning and to talk about some of the ways that Jesus has been caring for Grace Rancho. It's been amazing and remarkable what Jesus has done. And I figured to spend a morning to reflect on that would be really healthy for us. I think it will help us rejoice and think about all the good things Jesus has done and is doing. Our church, as, as many of you know, is the product of a few churches coming together for a revitalization project. If you rewind... About two years ago, if you were to visit this church, it uh, would have been a totally different church. Um, the church had come on hard times. Uh, the pastor, who had faithfully served for 15 years and preached the word, um, was retiring. The church family uh, didn't know exactly what might be coming next, what pastor would serve their church. At the same time, two churches in various places, one in Simi Valley and one in Orange, had been praying about some sort of church plant or church revitalization. It wasn't quite clear what that was to be. And there's a long story, and if you've been in our membership class, you've heard part of it, but ultimately it's summarized in this, think of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's something that Jesus does uh, for His church. But our desire in coming here would to really do four things. To preach the Word of God. To pray that the Word of God would be effective in the lives of the people. To then invest in people. Build relationships with people. And fourth, to persevere through what the Lord brought our way. We were going to preach, pray, invest in people, and persevere and see what happens. We didn't have any guarantees. We didn't know what it would be like. Um, and we were praying from the beginning that God would uh, do His work among us, that God would go before us, that He would provide for us in ways we would have never anticipated. And so we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed a lot, and we asked the Lord for provision. Some of the things we asked for uh, were that God would be bringing people. Well, if you look around in this room, there's people here. That's an answer to prayer. We, we were praying that God would also allow us to become a, a church that is loving the Word of God under the authority of Scripture, recognizing its sufficiency. We were praying that we would be relationally united able to know each other and, and love one another and be able to invest in one another. We've been asking the Lord to shape us to be a disciple-making people that we're, we're not only really close with one another, but we're on mission to love our neighbors and to reach out. Friends, by the grace of God, we've been seeing those prayers answered. And many of you are answers to those prayers and the ways that you are loving the church and serving one another. It seems like every time I, uh, I'm in a conversation with someone from our church family, I'm encouraged by the way this church loves to serve one another. It's a blessing. But one of the things we've been hoping for in really specific terms is that we'd get to a point where we'd be able to be totally autonomous. I say totally. Uh, that doesn't mean we're cut off from any other relationship with other churches. But we've been looking at our church as a, a church that needs to become able to be self-sustaining. 
we've talked about two main pieces to that puzzle. Really, uh, one is a financial piece. Grace Simi and Grace Orange, these two churches, have been financially investing in Grace Rancho big time. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to do what we've been doing had they not been generous and willing to invest in our church. We've also been praying that the Lord would raise up leaders here. Uh, men who would want to be elders, who would be qualified to be elders, who would be able to function as elders. We've been praying for these things. The financial peace that the Lord would give us the ability to support ourselves so we're not dependent on the giving of these other churches. And also that the Lord would raise up men to shepherd the church, to care for the church, to lead the church, to teach the church, to function in the office of elders at the church. Those of you who've been through membership have been invited to pray for these things. And I want to say to all of you, those of you who have been praying, those of you who have been here who have been longing for that, it seems, church, that by the grace of God, by January 2020, both of these pieces are going to be in place. This is a cause for tremendous joy. This is an evidence of God caring for a precious little church that he loves. We have done nothing flashy. Can you tell? The laser lights don't work around here. The fog machines, we didn't get them installed. This has been an evidence that Christians want to hear the Word of God and they want to be in a church where they're known and able to serve. And God has been abundantly gracious. He is not obligated to bless us in the ways He has. We don't deserve any of this. And as I've been reminded, there are churches that are faithfully preaching, praying hard, longing for the day that they will be able to be autonomous, and they don't receive the same immediate response that it seems like we've received. Sometimes they labor in obscurity for years on end before they're able to appoint elders. It seems the Lord has blessed us with these things rather quickly. And for this, I am grateful. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to pull away from Jonah just for this morning, and we're going to look at some ways Jesus cares for the church. And this is intensely personal because we are experiencing this now. I want to start, and this is going to be selected scriptures, so we're going to be jumping all over the place. You can start by turning over to 1 Peter in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at four ways Jesus cares for the church. Four ways Jesus cares for the church. And I'm going to start by noting this, that Jesus purchases the church with His own blood. This is the first way that Jesus cares for the church is that He purchases this church for Him, for His glory, with His own blood. Look at 1 Peter. We'll skip right there into the middle of it in verse 18. Knowing, speaking to elect exiles, he says in chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but listen, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's very clear that Jesus purchased the church with His own blood. Jesus didn't go looking at His piggy bank thinking of what kind of silver coins He had, what kind of gold can He use to invest in the church. No, it wasn't something He could purchase in that way. He purchased it, it says, with His blood. Let that 
sink in of how deep he loves the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is talking to the elders and he's encouraging these elders to care for the church of God. And as a way to motivate these elders, he says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In other words, he's saying, elders, you should care for this church because it's precious. And do you want to know how precious it is? Consider the cost that Jesus paid for it. He paid for it with his blood. You know how much you value something by what you're willing to pay for it, right? You know if you value something a lot that you'll invest in it a lot. You, you want a nice house, you'll pay a lot for the nice house. You want a nice car, you're going to invest money in a nice car. You want to go on vacations, you value vacations, you're going to set aside money because you value that. But how many of you are willing to play, pay blood for any of those things? Uh, there, are, there are things that you might pay money, but you're not going to play, pay in, in blood. You're not, probably not going to lay down your life for a vacation. <laughs> you're probably not going to shed blood for a new car. These things are valuable to us, but they're not, they don't reach the level of value that we're willing to give up our lives to attain them. But those of you who have loved ones, maybe parents of children, there's a kind of love that you know that you say, you know, I would shed blood for this. Ah, there's a love deep enough that even you understand that you would sacrifice comfort, that you would sacrifice health so as to rescue a person, so as to help someone. Uh, you recognize that. Now, Jesus loves the church with that kind of intensity that it's not something He would merely pay money for. It's something He dies for. It's something He would be able and willing to shed His blood for. Let's even go further. It's a something that He would be tortured for. It's something that He would go to a scandalous cross for. You think about the love of Christ for His church and just look at the cross where He's willingly, as Hebrews says, for the joy set before Him, enduring the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because He wants to purchase these people. He wants to buy them back to the Father. You almost imagine the, the conversation between the Father and the Son going on in heaven before the foundation of the world. The Father says, I want to redeem a people for My glory. The Son says, how are you planning on doing that Father? And the Father says, I'm going to send you. And I want you to enter into the creation. And I want you to take upon yourself all the sins of anyone who would ever believe. I want you to take upon yourself the sins of My chosen people. I want you to go to the cross. And I want you to be brutalized there. I want you to be beat up there. I want you to shed your blood on that cross. And the Son says, of course, Father. Of course, I will do that for these people. Of course, I will. Out of my desire to honor You and out of my desire to purchase these people, I will go. And He goes for the joy set before Him. And He conquers their sin. He pays for it in full. He dies there as a sacrificial lamb, totally innocent, but taking upon Himself the sins of everyone who would ever trust Him. He rises from the dead. He's victorious over sin and Satan and hell and death. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And He rules over His church as head of the church. And He loves the church. It is precious to Him, isn't it? He purchased it with blood. If you're not a Christian and you're hearing about how Jesus purchases for Himself people, let me invite you right now into that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You have not deserved your sins to be forgiven. <laughs> None of us have. We're not here because we're good people. We're here because we are desperately needy people who have sinned against a holy God, who recognize that God would be good and right and just to condemn us forever, but in His amazing love has provided a Savior. We recognize that we can't do anything to save ourselves except to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ and to bank our eternity on Him. And if you've never done that, I invite you to yourself on at Jesus. He will save you. He won't turn you away. He will forgive you all your sins. He will clothe you in His own righteousness. And you right there will have your status changed. You will be a forever child of God. He will purchase you. And you'll be His. He loves the church. And that's 
evidenced by the fact that He purchased it with blood. And that leads into our second point here. Jesus loves the church like it's His bride. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to point to this passage to you because we'll read this in marriage counseling, premarital counseling. We'll open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll show the husbands their role and we'll show the wives their role. And and that's what this passage is really doing. But there's also something that's really clear in this passage. I want you to see in in Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 25. In his great epistle to the Ephesians, now Paul begins to talk to husbands and wives. Verse 25, he writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Pause there. Husbands, you have an obligation to love your wives. And the model for this kind of love is the love that Jesus has for this church. He goes on to describe a little bit more of what that looks like. But I want you to look at verse 31. Look at verse 31 now. He's making this case and he's going to point back to Genesis 2, the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And he quotes there in verse 31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he comments on it. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see what he's doing there? It's not like he's describing a marriage and he's going, hmm, how can I teach these, these husbands and wives to love each other? I've got to think of an analogy. I've got to think of an analogy. Oh, Christ's love for the church. That's a good analogy. You understand it's actually the opposite? God wants to communicate the depth of His love for His church. God wants to communicate how the church is loved by Jesus. And so what does He do in Genesis chapter 2? He creates marriage. Marriage becomes a parable that teaches us about the love that Jesus has for His church. Marriage is a picture. Marriage is an echo. Marriage is pointing at something. Marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is pointing us to a greater reality and that reality is Christ's amazing love for His church. Guys, this is why we, we love love stories. Come on, be honest. We, we love real good love stories. We all do. Some of our men won't like to admit it. You don't want to be caught watching a romantic comedy with your wife. But at the end of the day, we all have to admit we love the love stories. We, we want more of the love stories. We want the story of the, the hero who faces danger to go rescue the damsel in distress. He, he slays the dragon. He goes through dangerous places, a long journey just to win for himself the one he loves. Why does that resonate with us? Why are all the best movies these pictures of sacrificial love? Why does every movie you love have something to do with this great sacrifice, this great love that's demonstrated? Why do we all just want to applaud when we meet a couple that's been married for 70 years? Why does it just make us well up like, oh, what a glorious thing they've been married that long? Why is it? I'm sure some of you are with me on this. Then you're at a and that bride is about to bust open those back doors and walk through. Why is it that some of us like to turn and look at the groom, right? And see his face as he sees for the first time this beautiful bride that he loves and will love and will cherish and is making a commitment to love and cherish for the rest of his life. Why do we love those moments? Because they're pointing at something. They're pointing at something greater. And as pure as those things are, as glorious as those things are, there's something more pure, more glorious, more moving. And you know what it is? It's Jesus loves us. His church. 
How amazing! Do you know how loved we are? That the greatest love you've ever seen on earth is a mere echo of the great love that is Christ's love for us. He loves us. He loves us tremendously. There are songs that try to capture His love. And they, they, they can, some can do well and others, but we're all just groping at words in the English language to try to capture the idea of the greatness of the love of God for us. One, one song I think does a, a fine job. You've probably heard it. One of the, the verses of the song goes like this. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made and every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole stretched from sky to sky. We can't exhaust the love of God for us, the love of Christ for His church. If you were to this morning begin to resolve to spend your whole life extolling the love of Christ for His church, you would not exhaust yourself. Let me put it another way. You'd exhaust yourself trying to exhaust the love of Christ for His church. You would not run out of things to talk about. All the ways Christ loves us. Throughout all history, He's demonstrated His great love for the church. We are loved by an omnipotent love. And we are purchased totally and completely by His blood. And that leads us to our third way that Jesus cares for us. And that is to say, this might be redundant, but I'll say it anyway because I want to make this point very clearly, Jesus actively cares for the church. So yes, He purchased us. Yes, He loves us like a husband loves his wife. I also want to point out though that He right now is active in His care for us. It's hard for us to remember this. Out of sight, out of mind. We haven't seen Jesus walking around in our lives. We read His Word. We understand that He's there at the right hand of the Father. So we can begin to believe that the church is really led by men and men alone. That this is a real, this isn't a supernatural enterprise. This is kind of a man-made thing we're all doing here. We forget that there's something very supernatural going on. That Jesus is, right this very moment, actively caring for us. Turn to Acts chapter 1. I want to just show you something that I've always found fascinating. When I preached through the book of Acts some years ago in the youth group I was at in Simi Valley, I remember being struck by this first verse of this long letter. You remember the book of Acts is written by a man named Luke. And you know that Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And chronologically, the Gospel of Luke comes first, and it's the story of the life of Christ. It tells His life on earth. It tells some of the birth narratives. It, it tells some of His ministry. It tells of His death, burial, and resurrection. All of that is included in Luke's Gospel, which is basically part one. And then you get to Luke, uh, Luke's second book, the book of Acts, where he begins to pick up the story of the apostles after the life of Christ. But I want to point out to you something he says in verse 1. Look at this. In the first book, which book is that? That's Luke. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began. Note that word. All that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. Hold on a second. Let's imagine you just read through the entire book of Luke and you come to the end of it. And now you're like, okay, I'm looking at volume 2 now. And here, you read, you think Jesus is gone, you think Jesus is out of the picture, you think Jesus has ascended into heaven, and you're right and all that. And then you pick up the book of Acts, and what it says is that all that first book was merely what Jesus began to do. What does that imply? That means there's more work to be done that Jesus is still at work in the church. And what happens when you read the book of Acts? 
Jesus is at work. Jesus is working in the church. Jesus is advancing the gospel. Jesus is saving sinners. Jesus is shepherding his church. Jesus is ruling the church. Jesus is advancing the mission. The book of Acts is, yes, a story of the apostles, but who's up above and over and leading and shepherding those apostles? It's Jesus himself. And that continues on through the book of Acts. I believe to this very day, who's the chief shepherd? Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 5 mentions Jesus calling Him the chief shepherd. Literally, you could call Him the chief pastor. In Revelation chapter 2, I invite you to turn there if you want. In Revelation, Revelation chapter, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is addressing seven churches. And he goes to each one. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is described here as the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These lampstands are representative of churches. And here Jesus is seen walking among the lampstands, walking among the churches. And then He will address each church one by one. He starts with the church in Ephesus. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know your works, he says. Look at chapter 2, verse 9, addressing the church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works. What are you hearing? Jesus is saying what to each of these churches? I know. I know. I know. I know your works. Chapter 2, verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith, and service. Chapter 3. You get to midway through verse 1. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know. Chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. Jesus knows every church perfectly. Jesus knows Grace Rancho perfectly. He knows you with a perfect knowledge. He knows us with every last detail accounted for. He knows our struggles. He knows our joys. He knows our successes. He knows our failures. He knows our faith. He knows our doubt. Jesus has been here the whole time. He has heard every sermon. He's heard every song. He's heard every prayer. He is hanging out afterwards and hearing every one of your conversations. He's among us. Just as He walked among the lampstands, He walks among us. He is here. He is present. He said Himself as He sent His apostles off, Behold, I'm with you always. You go to the ends of the earth. I'm with you. And listen, Jesus is moved with compassion for His church. It is not merely that He shows up. He shows up because He loves us. He has compassion toward us. And listen, He knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need better than what we think we need. He cares for us actively. He's moved with compassion to give us that which we need. Oh, it is comforting to know that we have a chief shepherd who is a perfect pastor. It's comforting to know as church members that your pastor has a pastor. Your elder has a chief elder. It is Jesus Himself who has given us His perfect Word, who speaks to us through His Word, leads us and guides us through His Word. He actively cares for us. He is a better pastor than you've ever dreamed of. He knows you so perfectly well. He knows what we need. He knows when to give. He knows when to take away. He knows when to say go. He knows when to say wait. He is a perfect shepherd. I think we can find so much joy in this reality that He's actively caring for us right now. Have you recently reflected on this glorious truth that Jesus is intimately involved in all the going-ons around here? Have you re rejoiced in the reality that He's a shepherd to us? 
who leads us, guides us, and protects us. I want to point now to the fourth way that Jesus cares for His church. Jesus gifts the church with under-shepherds. Jesus gifts the church with under-shepherds. In Ephesians chapter 4, you can turn there if you want, Jesus is described there as the one who has died and ascended into heaven and as the resurrected Lord, He is described as giving gifts to the church. There's two kind of gifts that we see in that little text. In one part, and I think it's verse 7, that he, de- he declares that he gives gifts of uh, talents, abilities, spiritual enablements that he, every member of the church has. The measure of Christ's gift is described there. That every person saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit is given a gift from Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to describe a different kind of gift. Look at verse 11. The resurrected Christ, it says here, He gave Jesus, that is, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Where did the the leaders of the church come from? Right here, Jesus is seen as the one who after rising from the dead and as He sits on His ascended throne, He's the one who gives leaders to the church. This is confirmed in Acts chapter 20. Verse 28, talking again to the elders, pay careful to yourselves, pay attention to the flock in which, listen to this, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Jesus leads the church, shepherds the church, and one of the ways He cares for the church, listen, is to raise up from among them shepherds after His own heart. These are not men who are ambitious selfishly to grab for themselves an office. These are men who in submission to the chief shepherd have this growing internal desire to shepherd the flock on behalf of Jesus Christ for His glory. Jesus appoints them. Jesus gives them. Jesus very clearly is the one who overseeing in His perfect knowledge and His perfect care for the church points these guys out, singles them out, and gives them to the church. Now, I want you to see another passage though. I want you to see in Acts 14 something about how these men were identified, how they were appointed. You get to chapter 14, there's a missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas are part of. After they see some tremendous fruit, they go back to some of the cities where a lot of disciples were gathering and little churches had been sprouting up. Now what do they do with these new churches, these baby churches? What do they do? Verse 22, Acts 14, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Listen to this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, listen to this, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Okay, see what's happening here. These churches had identified some men that seemed to hold the qualifications for elders and the apostles recognized and affirmed it. And these men were then appointed. And how were they appointed? It says here two words, with much prayer and with much fasting. Here's what's happening. How do elders come to the church? Is it something that Jesus does or is it something that the church does? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Yes. Yes, they're gifts from Jesus. They're supernaturally gifted to the church from the resurrected Christ. But how are they identified? By people in the church through prayer and fasting able to identify what kind of men these are. What kind of men they should be. I like thinking of it this way. These are gifts. Leaders, elders in the church are given by Jesus through the church. By Jesus through the church. Now that brings us to a question. But I hope it brings in your heart a question. You say, okay, I'm, I'm a church here. I'm, I'm part of the church. 
you're saying that these, these elders, though they're given through Jesus, they come through the church. Yeah. So that means for you, you church members, there is a measure of responsibility when it comes to recognizing and identifying who these men are. You might use this analogy. Some of you have already started your Christmas shopping. You are getting gifts for your family. You're wrapping those gifts. You're going to set them under the tree. And at some point, one of your loved ones is going to open up that gift to see what it is. You can think of it this way. Jesus gives gifts to His church because He loves His church, because He cares for His church. And these gifts are gifts of men. And you might think, well, how do we open it? How, how do we see who these guys are? How do we recognize who the elders of the church are? I'm going to give you five ways to identify the, the gift. I'm going to give you five ways to identify the elders among us. It's my absolute conviction that elders are given by God. They are forged in heaven in a sense. They are empowered by the Spirit. It is a gift that God gives to the church, but the church has a role in unwrapping them, identifying them, seeing who they are. We don't randomly pick who we think should be elders and then hope they do what elders do. We see who's doing the stuff. We see who's meeting the criteria. We recognize that the Bible has given us uh, clear directions for who these men ought to be, and then we just look around and say, who's doing it? Five marks. Five ways to identify them. And I want you to feel the weight of this. I want you to feel that you, in a way, as a church member, are responsible for recognizing this in people around you. First, elders are among the people. An elder's not aloof. An elder's not in the clouds, living in the abstract. An elder's not surrounded by his books, studying theology all the time, so he has no time for people. As smart as he might be, as effective as he might be up front in teaching, as effective as he might be in articulating uh, doctrine, we want to start with this. An elder is among the flock. As one author has said, a true shepherd smells like sheep. They're with the people. An elder that you don't know because he's never around, he's never seen, he's never involved or interested in your life, he's never asking you any questions, he's never pursuing you or anyone around you in the church family, is an elder that I would say is in disobedience to his call. 1 Peter chapter 5 makes it crystal clear when Peter is writing to these churches, I exalt the elders among you. They're there. They're with the people. They're part of the flock. An elder is first and foremost a Christian. Then he's a church member. Then he's an elder. An elder becomes an elder first by just loving the flock that is there among them. Verse 2 in 1 Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. An old elder in the Scottish church in the 1800s, David Dixon, wrote this. Speaking of the elder, he must be acquainted with them all. About his church family. He must be acquainted with them all. Old and young, their history, their occupations, their habits, their ways of thinking, and their children should be his personal friends. That they naturally turn to him as to one on whom they can depend. And as a kind of sympathizing friend and a kind of faithful counselor. I think it's deeply problematic in a church if no one knows the elders. No one has any access to the elders. The elders are operating more like a CEO. They got their ivory tower set up. And the only way to get to them is through layers, bureaucracy. See, Jesus is among the people. He's here caring for us. And that's how He wants His shepherds to be as they seek to represent Him. They're among the people. They know the people. They care for the people. They're involved in the people. They're investing and pouring out their lives for people. They want to be where their flock is. Where their flock is gathering, an elder says, I want to be there. 
I want to be among them. I want to care for them. I want to lead them. I want to teach them. I want to protect them. Secondly, they exemplify godly character. Again, these are non-negotiables. You can't have someone who's there all the time and say, hey, he shows up every Sunday. He's elder qualified. There's a quality of character that they have to have. You can turn to 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to camp here just to point out some of these other qualifications as we work through the rest of the message here. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is a list of qualifications. D.A. Carson likes to say about this list is the most remarkable thing about it is it's not all that remarkable. The, the qualifications you, you encounter in 1 Timothy chapter 3, did you know, are actually also given to every other Christian in the New Testament. Christians, all Christians are called to live up to these qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. All of them except one, and that's the ability to teach. Elders have to be uniquely uh, able to teach. All these other character qualifications are for all Christians. Why then are they singled out for elders? Listen, here's why. Because elders have to be exemplary. They're not called to some different category. They're not called to have some higher level of education. They're called to have the same kind of character as every other Christian, but to be living it out in such a way that is exemplary to the flock. I hope that as we have elders here among us, if you are trying to disciple a young person, and a young person comes up to you, and they're brand new to the Christian faith, and they didn't have Christian parents to show them the way, and they're looking to you, and you might feel inadequate, but they're saying to you, hey, I want to know what it looks like to live a Christian life faithfully. Well, I hope one of the things you could say to that young person is watch the elders. They're not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. But even watch how they make mistakes. Watch how they follow Christ. Observe their lives. They are seeking Christ. And in their pursuit of holiness, they are exemplary. Take a look at some of the qualifications there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're above reproach. You see that? Verse 2, above reproach, husband of one wife, they must have an exemplary married, marriage if they're married. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. They have a character that's under control. They're not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Managing his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If someone does not manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? We're going to talk about that in a second. He must not be a recent convert, you see there. Verse 7, he must have uh, some sort of reputation with outsiders. He's got to have a reputation. All these character qualifications are summarized there in chapter 3. So first, we find these people being among the people. The shepherds are among the flock. That's where you find them. And secondly, they have a kind of exemplary character that you would feel comfortable saying, follow that person. Follow that example. They're living these things out and they have a kind of example that the church can follow. An elder says with humility, follow me as I follow Christ. It's a weighty thing to say. In fact, I think elders say that with a kind of fear and trepidation. But like Paul, they say it. Follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Third, here's how we know who the elders are. They manage their household well. They manage their household well. I see this as a character qualification fused with a competency qualification. They have to have the character to be a good husband and to be a good father, but they also have to have the competency to manage their household well, to oversee the affairs of their household. In Greek, that word household is the word oikos. The elders need to be responsible for their oikos, their household. In the first century, this would not have merely been a wife and kids. In most scenarios, this would include an estate. This often would include extended family. Sometimes this would include servants. To manage a household meant to provide for your wife, provide for your kids, provide for your servants, provide for your extended family. It meant being able to manage money, to supervise, supervise the affairs of the business, the family income, so as to be, be sure and ensure that your family is provided and protected. 
That's what it meant to manage your household. The word for manage there in Greek is proistominos. It has to do with overseeing, managing, ruling, leading. It has this idea of authority and that the authority is used for the blessing of the household. So when we're looking for elders, know a little bit about their household, right? So their lives can't be so private that no one really knows what's going on in their home. Sense of order to their lives. It's not perfect. Certainly not perfect. No one would be qualified if households had to be perfect. But it also means there's not a chaos at home where the man has no handle on the household at all. Kids are running rampant, stampeding all over him and his wife. He can't make any decisions. He can't lead them in any direction. Well, that would indicate that this person might not be ready to serve as an elder, even if he shows up and even if he has a level of character. If he can't manage the household well, he's not an elder. Fourth, they effectively teach. Now, one qualification there in First Timothy that is not as related to character and more related to competency is able to teach. This, I don't think, refers to preaching only like what I'm doing right now. I don't even think it necessarily refers to leading a Sunday school or leading a small group, although those things the elders are willing to do or an opportunity comes. I think what this actually means is this person has the ability to articulate the faith in such a way that people understand it and also to be able to defend the faith from error. In Titus, that is made even more clear that an elder must be able to refute error. So we got to be able to identify elders and how we do that is recognizing, well, who can teach the Word of God? Who knows the Word of God? Who knows sound doctrine? And who has the capacity to help others know and understand it and apply it? You say, well, how do you figure that out? How do you know, how do you know who can do that? I think it's actually pretty simple. It's not that we need to give everyone a shot in the pulpit. It's not that we need need to give everyone a shot up front to see if they can teach. It's not necessarily any of those things. How do you know if someone can teach the Word of God? I think here it is. The evidence of people who are taught. The evidence that someone is able to teach is this. There's people around them that have been taught by them. They look to that person they say, that, I'm learning from him. I'm learning the Word of God from him. I'm learning what it means to love my wife from Him. I'm learning what it means to love my family from Him. I'm learning what it means to shepherd the flock from Him. I'm learning from Him. I'm watching how He lives in light of Scripture. I'm seeing, I'm learning from Him. And a person who would put himself to try to be an elder has no one who ever learns anything from is probably not an elder. As character qualified as they might be, if they can't teach and give the Word of God to other people, they are not able to fulfill this duty of the office. The office is one that must be able to teach, to handle the Word of God in such a way that people learn from them. I think this means that they are exemplary in their ability to make disciples. And so they're pursuing people in one-on-one -on -one or small group settings. They're inviting people into their home. They're demonstrating uh, what a life is, looks like to follow Jesus, but then they're also explaining how that works as they live their lives, um, a person must be able to do this. A man must be able to teach if he's going to be an elder of the flock. That's a negotiable qualification there written in the Scriptures, and so we hold the standard high. If a person will be an elder, we see that he must be able to teach. And so how do we identify an elder? Well, one of the ways is we're going to look for people who are being taught. And the people who are being taught are going to say, they're the one teaching me. I'm learning so much from them. And we're going to say, wow, that guy's acting like an elder because elders teach. Here's the fifth. They desire the work. They desire it. Right there at the head of the list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. An elder wants the position even more than the position, though, they want to do the work because they love the flock. They see Jesus is a shepherd. And they say, I want to be one too. 
They admire Jesus so much that they want to reflect His shepherding care in the church, office or no office. But when the responsibility of the office is offered to them, they say, yes, if I can hold this office in a way that honors the Lord and serves the church, then yes, I desire the task. 1 Peter chapter 5 says elders should not be eldering under compulsion. That is, they shouldn't be forced into it. It says they should do so willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. There's an eagerness that an elder has to shepherd the flock. There's a willingness to do it. There's no compulsion that's forcing him to do this. He loves for it. Men, I want to speak to you real quick for a moment. If, if you desire leadership in the church, let me affirm that that desire is not a bad thing. Holy ambition to serve the church is not a bad thing. A desire to do all you can for the church of Christ, even to take up offices of leadership, is not a bad desire. It's not a bad desire. And I just want to fan the flame. If you have desires to serve and lead, pursue them. And we cannot guarantee that you'll ever become an elder because that might not be what God has for you. You might be gifted in other areas. Not every person's gifted to be an elder, and that's fine. We don't need a bunch of elders running around. What we need is people to understand how God has gifted them uniquely and to fit into that role specifically. But it's not wrong to aspire to serve and to even lead if the door is open for you. Alexander Strauch in his book on eldership affirms this. He says, the desire to be an elder is not a sinful desire or self-promoting desire if it is generated by God's Spirit. A Spirit-given desire for pastoral leadership will naturally, listen, demonstrate itself in action. It cannot be held in. A man who desires to be a shepherd, elder, will let others know of his desire. An elder wants to do it, desires to do it, it's our job to identify these things happening in the lives of the people around us. Jesus purchases the church. We mentioned that. He loves the church. We mentioned that. He cares for the church actively. And one of the ways He does is by gifting the church with elders who will be His under-shepherds caring for the church in His name. Let's go back to where we began. As, as a church, Grace Rancho, we've been praying for this for a long time. We've been asking the chief shepherd to give us under-shepherds. We've been praying that God would raise up men who are qualified, gifted, and willing. Men that meet these five criteria that we just looked at. Friends, it looks like God is answering that prayer. And over the last year and a half, we've been in conversation with the elders back at Grace Seamy and been talking about always when, we, when I talk with them, who are the men? Who are the men that are rising up? Who are the people who are wanting the work? Who are the ones that are meeting this, these criteria here? And it seems that the Lord has been faithful raising men up to lead our church. God has made it clear I believe that Kent Roberts and Mark Severance meet these standards. I'm going to invite them up right now so you can meet, or not meet right now in the middle of the sermon, but meet them afterwards so you can see who they are. So come on up. You can stand right in here. And I'm going to awkwardly talk about you for the next few minutes. <laughs> Over the last several months, uh, we have been meeting to discuss the nature of biblical eldership. We've been praying for one another and for the church. We've been processing what it looks like to shepherd Grace Rancho. I've watched these men care for souls. I've watched these men handle the word faithfully. I've watched them disciple other believers, though I didn't push them to do that. There was their own desire to do so. I've watched them love and lead their wives. I've watched them shepherd their children and manage their households in difficult situations. Uh, I have seen them pursue the calling of shepherd 
again and again faithfully. Both of these men have filled out highly personal, intrusive applications. They have bared their souls. They have shared their hearts. They have opened their lives up to scrutiny. We with their wives, and we brought them into the discussion. We brought them to the elder board at Grace Simi, where they were grilled, I mean interviewed, <laughs> but received all thumbs up in terms of their qualification. Across the board, and everything we can to uncover every nook and cranny to make sure that these men are qualified according to the biblical standards of what it means to be an elder. And in every case, we have been encouraged. Standing before you are not perfect men. Uh, They have their own issues, but we have been encouraged to see that they are walking in purity. They are pursuing holiness. They are pursuing Jesus Christ. They want to honor Him with their lives. And for the sake of Christ and His glory, they have a longing to shepherd Grace Rancho. We are not going to appoint them to the eldership this morning. Rather, what we're going to do this morning, and the reason why they're up here before you, is because our desire is that the membership of Grace Rancho would be able to fully affirm and embrace these men as their elders. Every one of you who's a church member, you've gone through the membership class, and one of the things you've had to do in the membership interview is to affirm certain commitments. One of the commitments we brought before you was this. We affirm our commitment to submit ourselves to this church family, including the specific elders who are uniquely responsible for keeping watch over our souls. We want you to be able to affirm that commitment in light of these men becoming elders at Grace Rancho. Here's what it means for you. Over the next few weeks through November and December, we are inviting you to be a part of the process. If you have any questions about the qualifications of these men, I invite you to come ask. If you have concerns about their character, their ability to do what the Bible says they should do as elders, I invite you to talk to them about that. Now's the time to ask. If you are just uncertain of who these men are, and you're thinking, I want to be a member of the church here, and I want to be able to affirm their leadership, I would encourage you to get to know them. Invite them into your home or take them out to lunch. Schedule a meeting that you can get together with them. Because I want you to have as much confidence in them as I have. I think these men are prepared. And though they are mortal, and we are sinners, we are all looking to the chief shepherd to care for us. And our desire is to be shepherds after his own heart. What this means for us in the next couple months is that this is a great time of transition. And you are all a part of it. Over the next few weeks, as we gather again in the evening, tonight, next week in the evening, what we're going to be doing is talking about the role of elder a little more. We'll do that more tonight. Next Sunday evening, Mark will be sharing about his testimony, how he came to know the Lord, and also his sense of call to the eldership. The next week, we will not have a gathering, but the first week, December 1st, Kent will do the same thing. I want you to be there. I would love for our church membership to own this process because I'm asking you to be a part of this, to have full confidence that these men are called to shepherd the flock. Be a part of this. So Grace Rancho, I'm asking you, follow these men as they follow Christ. If you're not sure you can do that yet, I'm asking you to get to know them so that you can. We've spent almost two years with them I don't have any more questions. We've turned over the stones and saw what's there, and we've been encouraged. 
And if you're not sure you're ready to affirm, I invite you to do the same. Get to know them. We're going to pray for them and their wives. So I'm going to invite uh, Kim and Jody to come on up as well. And I want to invite the members of Grace Rancho to please stand. And as members, I want you to join me in prayer for these families. And then we're going to sing a song and then we'll be done with our morning gathering. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, you care for the church so well. You have conquered sin. You have risen from the dead. You have ascended into heaven. And you have been caring for our church so faithfully. And we rejoice in that. Now, Lord, it seems that you are making clear who is to lead our church, to shepherd our church, to hold the role of elder at Grace Rancho. And Father, we ask that you would move among us, making it crystal clear that these are the men who should shepherd. I pray that our church membership would be able to see and affirm the qualified character of these men that we might be united in this transition together. I pray as we move through this process that we would not be looking to the ingenuity of man, but the perfect wisdom of Your Word. And Lord, that we would not evaluate based on human opinion, on personal preference, or on whim, we would evaluate what it means to be a member and an elder through the perfect lens of Scripture. Lord, we know that You give gifts. and We ask that You'd make it crystal clear that these are gifts to the church, gifts of elders, gifts of shepherds, who will shepherd Your flock after Your own heart. Lord, we commit ourselves in this process to You. In Jesus' name. Amen.